big sky, big potential. In association with Mills and Reeve, this is Eastern Promise. Achieving more together. Welcome to the podcast that's a multi-purpose tool of advocacy and aspiration, wielded by Eastern Promise in and for the East of England. I'm Mike Rigby, and I'm delighted to welcome you to episode 79. And what an episode this is! I'll be chatting to Claudia Roberts, Chief Executive of the Zoological Society of East Anglia. The society runs two of Norfolk and Suffolk's foremost family attractions, Banham Zoo and Africa Alive. And I'll be asking Claudia about starting her job as CEO in the teeth of a pandemic when working from home wasn't an option, as well as their conservation work and future plans. And finally, don't listen to this at lunchtime unless you're ready to get out there and buy a butty. Yes, it's sandwich time on another tummy-trembling crowd sorcery. If you have children and you live in the east of England, particularly Norfolk or Suffolk, chances are you're a fairly frequent visitor to one of the Zoological Society of East Anglia's two parks, Banham Zoo between Attleborough and Dis in Norfolk and Africa Alive at Kessingland on the Suffolk coast. Make no mistake, these are two of the foremost family attractions in our region. And more than that, the ZSEA is also at the forefront of conservation efforts of species from the tundra to the tropics, including species native to the UK that are also under threat. My interest piqued by many visits with my own family, I wanted to know more particularly about how the two parks weathered the pandemic, as it's not really possible to work from home when you're a zookeeper. I mean, where would you put the tigers? So, with all these questions buzzing around my brain, I met with the ZSEA's inspirational chief executive, Claudia Roberts. I began by asking her how someone trained as an opera singer came to be running a couple of zoos. Well, it is quite a question, um, but um, I think I, I'd like to think of myself probably as, uh, well, I think of myself as more of an accidental CEO um, in the sense of um, I did train indeed and read music at university and trained to be an opera singer, um, but then had a sort of career in commercial um, and strategic sort of, com- sort of driving um, commercial objectives for businesses. And then I decided to take a break and thought I'd do something like a, an, an MBA um, and actually move away from perhaps the sort of his, his history of a music degree. Um, and in doing so, I found a job um, working at the zoo. But within two weeks of working here, COVID was here. Um, and within about six weeks, I found myself as interim managing director. 
um, and now four years later I'm chief executive um, having been through an incredibly difficult period but we have saved the charities so um, how did I get here I think um, music and maths is a good combination yes indeed <laughs> um, so I think that was definitely has helped me with sort of financial acumen and I think that the commercial experience that I had has really helped drive profit um, for purpose which ultimately is why we're here today so for those who don't know lots of people both in and beyond the region will be familiar with Banham Zoo People will also be familiar with Africa Alive out on the, the Suffolk coast, which will be uh, the Suffolk coast we're looking at uh, in, 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 in future episodes. But the Zoological Society of the, for East Anglia, what, what is that and what does it do, just for those who may not know? So our it's a charity and our charitable objective is conservation, education and community. So conservation being quite a broad word, actually. Because um, obviously we are about preserving wild futures, whether or not that just be animals, but mankind as well. So making sure that we move towards a very sustainable um, world. Education is really about inspiring future generations. Um, it's about the younger sort of generations who will be the future caretakers of the world. And so that's when people come to either Africa Alive or Bannum. Um, it's about making sure that we inspire them, make sure they have a great day out and they learn something to take home so that they understand their purpose in the world and why we need to do conservation programmes. Um, and then community is really for us is um, green spaces, well-being, making sure that we've got a place which is accessible um, for all, not just for certain individuals, mm. but accessible for all. And so we do all sorts of work there from um, working with sort of neurodiverse um, communities or just local communities or older members we have an amazing group of volunteers who come and help us and sometimes they've been through a difficult time in their life and so just being in a space which is lovely and green is great for their well-being and we've got a really exciting project with HMP Wayland at the moment really um, so they're also part of our community because they could easily be thought of as as um, as an, as an area which maybe is forgotten, but actually um, it's transformational, the work that we're doing there as well. So those are our three key objectives, conservation, education and community. Um, and basically we can't exist um, unless we make a profit. Um, and it's not a profit that people can take home. It's a profit we can reinvest in our purpose. Um, and that's where this business piece comes in. So we, we can only survive um, by having Banham Zoo and Africa Alive as places where people can come to um, because everything that people spend from their ticket price through to catering, retail and all the other parts of the income that they spend with us, that is the income which helps us survive and carry out our mission. So the two are very much hand in hand, which is the reason why it was so devastating for us when it was COVID and that area was, was closed. Yeah, that's, I mean, I'll just pause for a service vehicle to, uh, to make its way. Um, yes, I mean, COVID was incredibly difficult, but specifically for a place like this that relies so heavily on the people. I mean, what, what was it like? Because obviously you, you have a park where you cannot stop dead and send everybody home because obviously you have animals that have to be fed. How was it? Was it fairly easy to manage that? And, or was that a really sort of nightmare in terms of making sure that not too many people were in at the same time? I think, um, well, we had kind of different stages of nightmares in that journey and it <laughs> yes. was definitely a nightmare, some of it. 
Um, but I would say the resilience of our team is probably what carried us through. So I'm very grateful to that and also the support from my local community. But the kind of the three stages of the nightmare was first the unfolding financial crisis, which was like many businesses, not even just zoos or charities, but many, many businesses suffered because we are seasonal in this part of the world. Often we get an influx of people when the sun shines and they all go back to wherever uh, when it doesn't. Um, and so we're just coming out of winter and we're hoping for this wonderful spring, which helps rebirth, regrow and helps mm. us sort of survive and that visitor income coming in. And suddenly that was turned off. So we had a massive financial issue, which we had to do, we had to um, deal with. Um, the second sort of issue was the fact that you can't follow a penguin. So therefore, you can't follow a penguin keeper. Sounds like, sounds like, there's the title of your autobiography right there. You can't follow a penguin. So it was really difficult because it meant to say that for many businesses, I appreciated and felt for the hardship that they went through in retail, having come from a, a very retail background. Um, but you could shut the door. Yeah. And you could stay at home with your family and stay safe until it blew over. Whereas, and I appreciate those massive financial issues that come, so I talk about that quite flippantly. Yeah, yeah. But at the same principle, we couldn't. We had to still get up. We had to. St we couldn't follow those animal keepers, and we had to fight very, very hard to get funding. But we didn't actually get it until January of the following year. Um, and we actually got the largest um, zoo animal fund in the country, worth just under one point five million. But that was a long time to wait, and we lost about 1.5 million in revenue Jeez. at the same part. Yeah. So that was a huge juggling act, both for the capacity of the fact that you had lots of people working incredibly hard, um, and often in very small teams, because we had to make sure that team A didn't come in at the same time as team B or team C, because if one team got COVID, you can't actually put on a mm. thing to say, can I have a tiger keeper tomorrow? <laughs> um, and then the third part, yes, was then welcoming those visitors back, was... How do you let people come back and how do you keep them safe? So we did lots of things like make the park one way, um, have lots of different restrictions in. We had to think of quite innovative entrepreneurial ways to make sure we could still let people eat by having outdoor um, sort of restaurants and uh, pop-up cafes. But there was just an awful lot of change, making sure there wasn't too much queues, um, even just on entrance as well as on exit and making sure that you could feed people oh. through. But it meant to say that we had to reduce the number of our, uh, our visitors into the park by about 50%. So again, that's already hitting mm. visitor income again, which, as we talked about earlier, was this profit equals purpose. So if you reduce that, then you, you sort of have this endless juggling act. And, and I, so I would say that's be, that was incredibly difficult too. And then it's, we've just, well, like the world has been through a series of quite difficult fiscal economic challenges since. So, you know, we're still standing, we're still very positive and very, um, you know, aiming for the future, but it has been a very difficult journey for all of our teams. Um, I suppose our animals, fortunately, have been the ones who've been least aware because they've oh, always yeah. been looked after throughout. But And that's how we should be, I suppose. And no wonder, I have to say, no wonder you've been recognised as a as uh, an inspirational leader, because it certainly sounds from what you're saying to me that you, you led your team, you know, amazingly during what was an incredibly difficult time. It was easy for me. I was just sat at home doing the old Zoom interview at that point. Um, but when the zoo opened, and I'm speaking now as someone with a local, living locally to Vanham Zoo with a local family, 
um, a bit of a godsend, frankly, when the doors opened again and we could entertain um, entertain our family uh, by, by bringing them here. And we're so grateful for the work work you did there. And you remind me, actually, in many ways, of the interview I did at um, Norwich City Community Foundation in that the heavy focus on community, on all communities, not just the obvious ones, but as you say, the neurodiverse community, the older community, and that diversity of offer, I think, is, is, is really important. And I really think it speaks to how brilliantly, as a, as a county and as a region, we do these things because organisations like Banham Zoo, the ZSEA, and, and um, Norwich City Community Sports Foundation recognise those, those, those diversity of audiences. Yeah, and I think it's incredibly important. I mean, one of the things that... I'm very great to, grateful for is that um, we've been working with Breckland Council and we just put in changing places here, yes. changing places unit. And actually it was just, it's, it's moments like that which make all of that hardship really easy to deal with because you end up with a family saying, thank you so much for putting a changing places unit in because we used to have to go leave here at 11 o'clock in the morning and now we can stay all day and you've transformed our lives mm. and and yes, I just think we need to do more of it. And I wish we could do more and we will do more. <laughs> but there's obviously a financial piece involved in that too. But we will do more. Um, and we're, doing, we're going to be doing that over Africa Alive as well. But you're right. It is really important. It's a great region. And it's lovely that so many people are kind of, I don't know, wanting to make it in, um, you know, inclusive and accessible. Yeah, vital. yeah absolutely. Um... You are doing increasing amounts of work around native species, and I know that there's been some ill-informed, should we say, commentary on that elsewhere. But it's hugely important work, and we passed on our way here a display board about the white, uh, the white-clawed crayfish, um, and pr- the, work, the work you're doing, the work the ZSEA is doing, protecting that from local extinction. Um, and my reaction to that is, well, if not you, then who? And you're perfectly placed to do that. Do you? Talk us through the work you're doing uh, around native species and protecting those uh, species that are that are under threat. Certainly. So I think so. That is a great project, um, and we're doing it in conjunction with the Norfolk Rivers Trust. And I think it's a it's a really interesting example of how if you lose one part of the ecosystem, the entire ecosystem and that particular thing can break down. So what seems to be happening inside is kind of what is otherwise a shipping container from the outside is such <laughs> a vitally important piece of work. And, um, and again, we, we have that grant funded, that project, and, um, and it is hugely vital. And it was great to be able to rebuild our conservation team after COVID because actually things like that, which had to stop, it's heartbreaking when you're in the middle of projects like that. So it's great to see that start. Um, but as far as our wider sort of native species conservation work, um, it's all to do with our sort of our vision for 2030 and beyond, which is really we are the home of beautiful international species, which will always remain the home of. But we also have a vitally important part in making sure that we, we protect what's on the hours of the UK. And especially within such a rich biodiverse area as the east of England. And so as part of our kind of our piece about um, this conservation and education and community and meeting our charitable objectives, we've created this sort of vision for this immersive tour around the outside of the zoo, which will take you to the different regions of the UK. 
Oh, wow. and the different landscapes and whilst they go to those we will be doing different nature species recovery conservation programs so that you can understand and relate to um, for example if you go to the east of England you'll see the kind of key species that we're trying to do conservation programs on within their right habitat and then we're going to use the forest area to do a bit about north of Scotland and so forth we're going to have a an area of our um, at the back of our rainforest, which we dedicated to the sort of rainforest of Wales. And, you know, I think children don't think of a rainforest in Wales, but we have, you know, the Celtic rainforest. It's, it's temperate. Yeah. And it's really important for children to realise that these things aren't just overseas. But yeah. of course, there's the majesty of tigers and lions and rhinos and all the beautiful animals we have here. But they need to also understand the relationship between those and everything that we have here around us. And I suppose that vision came out of working quite closely with conservation teams, but also reading the State of Nature report um, and seeing just the state of how many things have gone extinct. And I suppose it wasn't really until um, people, I think it was what not last year, the year before, when the heat was so extreme and everyone kept saying, oh, it's so hot, it's unbearable, it's so hot. But actually, even just... The fact that you can drive in your car now and you don't get the insects on your windscreen mm. like you used to. Yeah. And people just saying, oh, well, that's good. Cause, but actually, this is ecosystems breaking down. Yeah. This is things, this yeah. is it beginning to collapse. And I have children and, um, and I certainly want for my children to make sure that they can still enjoy butterflies and birds and native species. Because what I grew up with is certainly not what they have today. And what their children have will be something very, very different. Absolutely. Unless we all to be sort of grouped together. So that's our sort of broader theme around our native species. And so what would you say the difference was between a zoological park and a zoological garden? Is, 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 are they very interchangeable or are they very different? Well, it's interesting because people said, so why are they calling themselves Bannon Zoological Gardens? Does that mean they want to get rid of all the animals? Absolutely oh, not. <laughs> people always assume, oh, something dreadful must be about to happen rather than something wonderful might be about to happen. But actually, one of the things that we're doing, and we've got a wonderful gardener here. He's amazing. And Andy's actually, he's, he's, he's dedicated. He wants to win the Biaza, which is the British Naris Association of Zoos Prize for the best gardens. He wants to make sure that the animals are in gardens which are suitable for their, you know, you know, their existence, are right for their country, that people can actually enjoy zoological and gardens together. Mm. So it becomes both a zoological delight and also an educational and horticultural delight. It mm. doesn't mean we're going to do one or the other. It means we're going to match it. Right, I'm now glancing down at my book, which I wrote, I wrote by hand and means I... I... <laughs> It one word in five because of my rather interesting scroll. Um, so, I mean, you've, you've, you've gone into this a bit, uh, and part of your sustainability strategy talks about reimagining the spaces of wild and native species and preserving them for a sustainable future. Uh, um, have you just, uh, you may have just answered this question as to what reimagining spaces actually means. I think one of the things that we... So the zoo started um, by the Goymore family and it was in family ownership for 50 years and it only became a charity 10 years ago. Um, and so as part of that, obviously, it's a bit like moving into your new house, isn't it? People want to make it their own. And I think one of the things that we found is, is that um, 
And sometimes we've had we've had some comments about it from sort of visitors. People say, oh, it was looking a bit tired after COVID and what are you planning on doing with it? And, you know, we're not a privately funded organisation which can suddenly afford to build a massive, big um, new um, exhibit. But what we can do is, is constantly reinvest and rethink about what we should be doing with our spaces. So I suppose reimagining our spaces is, is kind of, it all starts with a master plan, and that master plan is about the animals. And says these are, we're custodians of these animals and we have to care for them. Are they in the right spaces? Do they have enough space? Do we need to make, give them more space? Which ones are of the highest conservation or concern internationally as well as native species-wise? And then we need to grow that because actually as the future goes, we need to make sure that we're helping yeah. the world with the higher... Um, and, you know, there's a kind of rating scale of about 80, 90% of what your collection, so all your animals in, in total, should be on the sort of high conservation scale. And we're, we're not at that point yet. And we need to get to that point yeah. in order to be doing the right thing for what we should be doing. And it's not a, something which happens overnight because these animals are, are animals. They're like everyone's like mm. pets of their family. Um, but it's, it's somewhere we need to progress to. But in progressing that, the new rules, new legislation comes out, maybe about space that you should allocate to certain animals or about enclosure sizes or things they need to do. So that reimagining is, is basically saying who's in our family and how are we basically going to look at what they actually need and then what other spaces do we have and how could we utilize those spaces better so that when our visitors come in they they see constant improvement and so that's why even a small area like there was a bit of an area next to the central restaurant lots of people kept saying who who needed to have some accessibility said you know what your disabled toilet isn't very helpful difficult to shut the door on, difficult to do that, often blocked with queues. So we've reimagined a space and we've now got applied for mm -hmm. a grant and we've got this amazing changing places. Yeah. Or else we're taking an area which I suppose otherwise um, used to have a couple of different animals all in separate enclosures, but actually we've, we've created a mixed enclosure so that they can be together. So it's really about making the best of everything you have and making sure that behind that there's a very clear master plan and a yeah. very clear financial strategy to support that master plan. So does the master plan, I mean, from, from, from how you're describing it, correct me if I'm wrong, your master plan certainly seems to allow you to respond quite dynamically to these things as they come up. So has, has that been a deliberate thing or is that just your... You, you know, the obviously recognised style of your leadership that's, that's allowed you that f dynamic flexibility and your team? I think, I think it's probably because we're smaller, we can be more agile. Mm. So it, if you go to a very large zoo like ZSL for Zoological Society of London, mm -hmm. they're a very large institution. So it'd be like turning around a steamship trying to, trying to make this type of yeah. change. But for something like Z, we're much, much, we're much smaller it's only 10 years, as I say, since the sort of charity's inception. So that therefore, it was still, I suppose, almost finding its feet and then COVID struck. Mm -hmm. And so we almost had to start again and find our feet again. And I suppose um, maybe my leadership style comes more from a financially sustainable um, viewpoint rather than a conservation viewpoint. Obviously, the conservation viewpoint is... is key to it yeah but with, without the other you can't you know but you can't do one without yeah. the other so um and having come from a retail background you everything is master plan everything is you know 
is sort of exit and entrance all the time. That's what the whole thing is about. So I suppose that's when my background perhaps thinks differently about that and thinks about the visitor experience, because at the end of the day, the visitor is in incredibly important because without the visitor, we can't do any of our amazing work. Mm. So it's that's if that sort of answered your question, I don't know if I've gone a bit off piece. No, no, it's actually you've answered it brilliantly. And um, we just want to sort of slightly move over it and uh, how that you're addressing the challenge of uh, for all its current turbulence, net zero and the work you're doing there, because obviously some things you do here, I may be completely off, off, off piece myself. Um, might be really difficult to fit in that. Others might be really simple to fit, fit around that agenda. But I just was really interested to, to hear you describe what ZSEA is doing at both parks in that, particularly maybe Africa Alive, where heat, I'm, you know, stereotyping perhaps, but heat, generating heat for the really animals might be more of an issue. Well, I think there is two, I mean, I, I think of net zero um, or kind of anything about sustainable living as being something which, if you're not careful, it becomes so big the task in hand that you could easily say we can't afford to do that mm -hmm. and so my approach with the teams was about a year and a half ago we basically ran some focus groups across every single person it didn't matter what your job was and we invited everybody to come in and I basically explained um, what the 17 UN sustainable goals were and said you know these are these are the goals and this is how we could apply them within a zoo environment. But why don't we now go away and break out into breakout groups? And why don't you come back and say, how do you think you could impact doing your job? And actually, it was, a really, it was really empowering because actually what I found was is that they have this, because they know what they do and they're skilled in what they do. So we've made lots of little changes from mm. the cleaning department coming back and saying, well, actually, we don't like the fluids that we use and we want to change all of those. And actually... Um, we have been suggested X, Y, and Z, and if we go for that, then we can make them ourselves. There's less wastage, la la. And oh, so we made those changes. We had our buying and merchandising teams talking about the kind of how they purchase and actually who they purchase from, and the importance of buying local, and the importance of miles when buying, and the importance of kind of the credibility of what we sell and palm oil within our shops and so forth. And so they've created their own rule book around what is right and what is wrong. And then you have the people in the sort of catering who are saying, well, actually, we don't want to sell sandwiches which get thrown away. We want to make our own sandwiches. And I suppose that whole sort of net zero piece on a kind of day-to-day -day basis, I'm a great believer in the little things snowball mm -hmm. and they become a bigger, bigger snowball and yeah. let them empower themselves. On a bigger, more strategic line, we've been talking about great, exciting plans, which we can't do tomorrow but things like if we created a, an electric car, a, a car park with solar panelled, um, almost like roofing, which people yes. could park under, and it's always raining, so it's actually quite nice because you get protection from the rain. But actually, we've been told that that solar-powered car park could power our entire site yes. in the future. Yes. Um, we've also got lots and lots of flat buildings, and again, that's a perfect opportunity to do those, those types of things. We've been looking at the way we deal with rubbish and waste and talking to lots of different sort of suppliers saying, how could you help us transform? 
So there's lots and lots of different kind of routes, and I've just touched on a few, which we are looking at both from a very high level, huge investment, strategic, electric car charging points, you name it, to actually starting by doing something little now, and that's what our teams are doing. And actually, it's so exciting because somebody said, well, actually, I want to make it more accessible for all our park because actually lots of people can't afford 20 quid entrance. Yeah. And so we had these sort of five and ten pound days and some people say, oh, are they doing it? Why are they doing that? But sometimes we see whole different groups of communities. You do, come in. yeah. A whole different uh, demographic yeah, comes through the door. a whole different demographic. And these people are so grateful and they've always wanted to come to the zoo, but it was something which wasn't in their yeah. space before. Or we've done amazing stuff with uh, Norfolk Mind and Norfolk and Waveney Mind. Yes. And that's been amazing too, having days when actually we just say, just come in and connect with nature. And literally, for a fiver, you can just come into our zoo. And we've had individuals come in who said they couldn't get an appointment with a doctor, but they wanted to come in because then they found somebody in a quiet space from Norfolk and Waverley Mind who they could talk to, and it was vitally yeah. important for them. So I'd say, for me, net zero sustainability, it's about making sure we not only look after the world we live in, but also the people and the animals as well. Yeah, so how do you... It seems like they almost select themselves in a way, but how do you select the partnerships that the zoos and ZSEA enter, enter into? What, what are the criteria you're looking for in, in, in those kind of partnerships with uh, Norfolk and Waveney Mind, etc.? Is it, is it um, you know, I, I, I'm about to waffle on for a bit, but I'll, I'll let you answer the question. What are those partnerships based upon from your point of view? I think... Ultimately, they have to connect with our charitable objectives. So they have to have a conservation side or an education side or a community side. So we did a partnership recently with Tusk International out in Africa because one of the things that I didn't want was Africa Alive, for me, felt a bit theme parky. And I don't want to be a theme park. Yeah. I, want to, I want us all to you know, support what our charitable objectives are. And actually, working with, with, with Tusk, they are supporting conservation um, through amazing programs throughout Africa. They're doing education through their PACE project, which is working in schools to try and teach the children within these sort of villages in Africa to say you need to look after what you have um, and you mustn't kill it for money because actually there's a bigger world out there and you can have profitable lives in other ways. You don't have to do it like that. Um, but also building wells and providing water and a sort of community initiative. So for me, that's a perfect partnership. It matches all three. If you look at Norfolk, Waverley and Mind, you know, they're doing conservation of people. They're looking after the well-being of people and supporting people mm. so that they can be calm and live happily. And they're educating people because they're raising awareness, which is vitally important because it's okay to be not okay sometimes. Yeah. Um, and also, they are helping the community. So again, they help us on a different front. We recently created a charitable ambassador called Alfie Bowen. Um, and Alfie's a most gorgeous man, incredibly talented, um, 24 um, years old. And, you know, he went to a school in the area. He was really badly bullied. He had spaghetti thrown at him and all sorts of horrible things happened to him. And actually, Alfie came to our zoos with his parents as a place of peace and learned to photography and learned to connect with nature and actually he's worked with um, our education team and I went along some too and we went to loads of schools all over um, Norfolk and east of England actually 
um, delivering a talk called Accepting People for Who They Are, where Alfie talked about his experience and why it's important to accept people who they are because a lot of his children think wow cool photographers coming in yeah. the room he's got the stamp of chris packham and david attenborough they didn't realize the difficulty and hardship that he went through yeah so yeah. if that kind of highlights they can be all sorts of partnerships but they have to be central to our charitable objective yeah. in terms of the skills piece and uh, you obviously need a range of staff here a wide range of staff with various skills from retail to as you say merchandising to animal care how do you find and attract particularly the uh, the, the the skills around animal care and and, and um the, the those i'm trying to think of the word i'm, I'm uh, how do you how do you attract uh, those particularly uh, involved with the care of animals and the maintenance of the habitats the animals are in uh, to come and work at either ban animal or africa alive so as far as animal management is concerned, there's usually two routes. So either people will come straight out of school or as a career change as a trainee um, apprenticeship in animal management. Um, and that's where they will kind of learn almost the ropes and they will then get set on a programme, which is about five or six levels all the way up to sort of being animal manager at the end of, I think, their long journey, as it were. Um, I did a... Um, I've done a couple of days, but I have to say uh, one of the days I did when I worked uh, with the carnival team, I think is still probably my favourite day of my entire career. It was amazing. I was like, this is the most awesome job. Um, it's so rewarding and so connecting and so grounding that it was amazing. So I can see why people have that as a career. Um, we find that if we put a job um, offer out, or not offer, um, sort of, um, advertisement out mm. for an animal manager um, or even a trainee apprenticeship scheme will get 50 people apply whereas if we put out the same thing for so catering or retail we don't get that same response at all no. so it's hugely coveted as it were um, as far as how we recruit further up the chain in that animal management piece um, Biazo, which is the British and Irish Association of Zoos um, they have a kind of job board, as it were, and that's where oh, all, yeah. all the zoos say, I need a senior carnival team leader or whatever it might be. And people do tend to work in zoos and then move to the next zoo and move to that. So there's a kind of a real sharing community. It's not like the commercial world where people don't want to look at you when you say you're going to their competitor. <laughs> it's actually a really lovely thing to take people's knowledge and experience and share that. Um, but I'm also a great believer, and I'm always saying to the team, we really want to train and invest in people, especially yeah. in the east of England, because I think it's a great region to live in. But also, we want to make them so good that anyone will hire them, but they'll never want to leave. And that's really our kind of motto. And it, it takes time, especially when you've been through quite a lot of financial diversity or adversity, I should say. Um, but that's what we want from our, our sort of teams. So that's how we recruit on that front. As far as more the, the kind of running the business type of stuff. We tend to go down more of the more traditional routes of mm -hmm. whether it be I don't know, um, applying using social media or LinkedIn or Indeed or recruitment agencies. Um, but you usually find that people want to come here because they're deeply rooted in the purpose. Yes, that's so important, isn't it? It's massively part You want of, that though, don't you? Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely you want that because... Sometimes, I don't know why, if I think people think maybe it might be a slower pace of life. It's, 
out of all the careers and all the jobs I've ever had, this is <laughs> this has definitely been the most challenging. I bet, yeah, because you there are there are you, draws on so many different things. Yeah, and animals are living living creatures who aren't necessarily bothered. Uh, you know, the, the 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 intricacies of a balance sheet aren't necessarily going to trouble. You know, your, your your tigers, but. I mean, and it's interesting what you say about the, the, the kind of very open and willing trade in, um, in, in staff. I can call it trade. Um, you know, the, it, it kind of reminds me of all the things I see on television about, you know, tearful keepers boxing up, um, put, uh, helping a, an animal into a crate that's going off to another zoo as part of a breeding program. Um, do you, does that, I mean, presumably that must happen here uh, in both directions. And if there's an animal leaving, do you make it a point? I mean, this is a terrible question if the answer is no, but um, do you make it a point to go along and sort of see the animal off, as it were, or, or, or is that something you prefer, you prefer to leave to the, to the keepers? Um, I don't personally always do that. Sometimes they are... It's incredibly technical, moving an animal. Yeah. So sometimes we don't even really announce it or do anything until the animal moves being made or being made. That's understandable. Um, yeah. But I would say that the collaboration involved in moving animals... Uh, really showed its complete strength and power when at Africa Alive um, during the st- uh, Storm Eunice last in 2022, it, it basically a tree came down and knocked out our entire lion enclosure fence. We fortunately the lions were inside at the time. I say that's very Jurassic Park. That bit, isn't but, it? Um, but five of them were in a very small area and we needed to find them a home. And within 48 hours, we'd secured them a home to go to Whipsnade Zoo. And within five days, they were moved there. And that's the kind of power of the zoo community, going, reaching out, helping each other, supporting each other. And, you know, our teams going over there. And then when their teams brought the, the, um, brought the lions back, they, they all came up, made sure they settled in. It was a really kind of, it, it was really full of what I would say, the right spirit of, of, of collaboration and helping out in in a period of quite a, a difficult period, so yeah. I'll just I'll t- move on to my last couple of questions. That you, the Conservation Research Centre 2030. What can you tell me about that? So this is a really exciting project um, that we're currently working on. So fingers crossed, the Leveling Up Fund three goes ahead. We're not sure at the moment. Um, there's lots of movement and things going on in politics <laughs> at the moment. Um, but even if it doesn't go ahead necessarily um, this time, we will still endeavour to go forward for that. So what we really wanted to do was create a, um, a very large building um, in the centre, which was like a hub. And in that hub, basically have, um, have an area which was on three floors. So on the basement floor, have something which was totally immersive for visitor engagement, all about nocturnal um, breeding so that something's totally different indoor um, because we do have rather a lot of wet days um, and then um, on the first floor have a kind of almost a, a central zone a sort of conservation education hub zone where actually people can learn more about just breeding programs we can also tap into working with local schools and colleges and try and look at apprenticeships programs across all the different areas um, of our zoo um, and make sure that they've got a sort of central place where they can come which is interactive and they can learn and then actually use that learning practice out in our zoo as well and then on the top floor um, that actually is something which we wanted to create something which was also about kind of food, the, the kind of food piece and sustainable living oh, wow. um, so it becoming we're working with a Veni partnership which is an amazing program actually I don't know if you've heard of it 
um, and they are um, they're basically working with sort of colleges to try and help train young individuals into tourism through sort of catering projects and so that's a kind of you almost think of sort of the Jamie Oliver sort of 17 type style so that would be at the sort of top of the building so central you know it's going to be a central conservation education hub for sure but we wanted it to have a little bit more on it um, and that will be the centerpiece of our massive sort of 10-year native haven sort of master plan that walkway i talked about earlier mm. um, but all linking with a sort of international oasis remaining in the center that sounds amazing i really look forward to visiting that um in in, in the future and uh, final question this is going to sound very unfair, but I'm going to go for it anyway. So what if you if you could take visitors to just one area of either of your parks or pick one of each, where would you take them first? I'm not saying that only, but first. Today. Any day. Any day. Banham, Africa Alive. Banham and Africa Alive. You tell me. So I think probably, I think today, if it was today and you, if I was taking you, I'd probably take you down to our tiger enclosure because I think it's, I think it, I think it's amazing to see our new cubs, which we've had, mm -hmm. because I think that's a really exciting piece in, in what possibly is, is what we're all about, what we're trying to yeah. strive for, which is ammo tigers are, you know, there's less than 500 in the world total. And they may not be around soon unless we have these types of breeding programs. So that's incredibly exciting. And I think it's, it's a quick way to get a quick understanding of, of that piece of why we do our purpose. So I think I'd probably take you there if it was right today. Um, I, think if it was in, I think if it was in Africa Alive, um, I think I'd probably walk you down all the way to the very, very bottom, uh, away from all the animals. Um, interestingly and take you to waders lake which is just an incredibly beautiful space which we've um, has been fairly much untouched and we've been doing something called a bioblitz recently which is trying to identify all the kind of native species around there and it's very very rich in it and i think i would take you there to say this is what we might lose if we didn't do our project yeah that's incredibly important to know what's at stake but claudia roberts CEO of Zoological Society of East Anglia. Thank you very much, not just for the interview today, but for all you're doing. Uh, Eastern Promise loves supporting as highlighting and spotlighting not just hugely important parts of our tourism sector, but organisations like yours that have a huge sense of purpose uh, and, and are cl so clearly motivated by delivering on those sensitive purposes, senses of purpose for a wide variety of audiences. You do fantastic work here. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Mike. Claudia Roberts was awarded the Inspirational Leader Award 2022 at her MBA graduation ceremony at the University of East Anglia. Listening to her, seeing her move about Banham Zoo and interacting with her team, it's easy to see why. My thanks to Claudia and the warm welcome from the ZSEA family. These are inspirational parks, gardens and preserves, doing incredibly important work for animals, whether here in the east of England or in their native habitats. It's a privilege to be able to tell more of the ZSEA story. To find out more, go to zsea.org. That's 
Zulu Sierra Echo Alpha org. Hunger to the curb with a look at where you like to grab lunch on the go. We're looking at where you get a freshly made sandwich in this week's Crowd Sorcery. Yes, Crowd Sorcery. Now, remembering that wraps, salads, and sausage rolls are all admissible. We look to our first recommendation, and it is from the wonderful, award-winning Paula Beckenstein, MCIM. Commercial biopharma executive, senior advisor, mentor, serial connector, and relentless optimistic. That must be why we get on, Paula. Optimists both, says Paula. Well, the one and only Bread and Meat by Simon Cheney, 4 Bennett Street, Cambridge. Now, that choice is seconded by Adam Peed, business development strategist at Inuti, who pens this testimonial about bread and meat, saying, These guys are constantly epic! <laughs> Previous guest on this merry podcast, Dr Tammy Dugan, Life Sciences and Healthcare Partnerships Lead at the University of Cambridge, brings us back yet again to hot numbers, saying... Just had a nice lunch at Hot Numbers Melbourne. Uh, does that count? Yes, Tammy, it counts. Avocado smash on sourdough, followed by elderflower, blueberry and pear cake. Now that's got the tummy of Deborah Dawson rumbling. Deborah, bridging legal solutions and new partnerships for our friends at Mills and Reeves, says, Sounds delicious, Tammy Dugan. I need to go there. Replies Tammy, It was. I really like it there. There you go, Hot Numbers Melbourne. You can't say fairer than that. And now, let's welcome a new member of the Crowd Sorcery Collective. Claire Hupton, Senior Development Manager at Homes England, who has a soft spot for another recurring favourite, Norwich Market. Says Claire, An abundance of choice! Either bread sauce or falafel and friends are all firm favourites. Hashtag Norwich Market. Well, there you have it. More than enough to sate even the most ravenous appetite. I'm just glad I ate before I wrote this script. Oop, pardon. And that's all there is for episode 79. My huge thanks to Claudia Roberts and the whole ZSEA family. It was a huge pleasure to be at Banham Zoo once again. Thank you to all my crowd sorcerers and to Engineer49, who fruitlessly scoured the zoo looking for some woofers and tweeters. Well, next week, we have something even more special for you. Cue the fanfare! Yes, for those who couldn't make the recent Eastern Promise event on decarbonising heritage at the hugely historic Jesus College, Cambridge, then fear not. Episode 80 of the Eastern Promise podcast will be bringing you not just the highlights of the day for the main podcast, but you'll also have the option to listen to the whole event from beginning to end. We'll be talking about how to ensure our region's historic buildings are not only preserved for future generations, but also how they can play their part in the fight against climate change at the same time. 
that was just the first Eastern Promise event, and more are being planned as I type out this script. Stand by for next week's bumper episode. And so, until then, bye for now. To hear other episodes of the Eastern Promise podcast and to find out more about what we do, go to our website at easternpromise.org.uk. Eastern Promise is a Priors Croft production in association with Mills and Reeve. Achieving more together.